as you can probably tell by the sound of my voice, I've acquired a, a, a cold since yesterday, but um, it's just a runny nose, so please don't be alarmed or inundate me with cures. <laughs> this is the only treatment I need. So to continue, this is the introduction to um, Being Dharma, um, so <coughs> edited by Paul Brighter, formerly Bhikkhu Varapanyo. It's a collection of uh, Lumpur Cha's teachings put together from uh, quite a, a variety of different Dhamma talks and arranged in a, a thematic uh, form. No matter where you are, no matter what your situation, it's possible for you to be practicing Dharma well. Even if you're young, it's something for you to do. Don't leave it to the old folks to do. Mostly, this is what everyone thinks now. When I'm older, I'll start going to the monasteries and spend some time on Dharma. Now I can't do it. There are lots of things to take care of first, so I'll have to wait till I'm older. They pass the buck to the elders. So it was a very common uh, mindset uh, and uh, the uh, way of thinking in Thailand uh, at, at that time. So these talks would have been given in the um, late 60s uh, through the 70s up to the, um, the uh, beginning of the 80s. Um, that uh, it's something for the, the old folks to do and uh, the young people are sort of busy with their responsibilities. So Lumpur is uh, addressing that um, uh, the, uh, the the average age of those gathered here at Amravati for this winter retreat is probably a little bit younger than the average age of those gathering in monasteries for Lumpur's Dhamma talks, but um, by um, at least by a, a decade or, t- or so. I don't know how great it is to be old, actually. Are there any old folks where you live? What kind of shape are they in? Could they keep up with you in a foot race? Their teeth fall out, their sight is weak, their hearing is going. When they stand up, they groan. When they sit down, they groan again. Yet, when are we? Uh, yet when we're young, we like to think, ah, when I'm older, I'll do it. Somehow we get the idea that in old age, we'll be energetic and robust. Old Mr. Kiam in the village here used to carry big planks around when he was a young man. Now he has to lean on a cane to walk. Life's like this. So... Don't get these funny ideas, please. While we're still alive, let's pay attention to good and evil. Whatever is wrong and bad, let's try to avoid doing. Whatever is good, let's make efforts to do. That's all. These are things that anyone can practice. You don't need to leave it for old age. Come on. You've seen aged people, haven't you? Every move they make is accompanied by groans and creaking. Don't you know why? Yet, even so, we close our eyes and ears and say, eh, let me finish with this first. Let me take care of that piece of business. Wait until I get older, then I'll go to the monastery. Can you understand this? When you're old, it's hard to sit for long. Listening to teachings, you might not hear clearly or understand well. So don't wait for old age. Practice steadily and continuously. Before old age comes, you have youth. It's not like you're old and then you become young. It only goes one way. 
The truth is that you've been ageing from a long time back. You probably have the feeling that you're young people, but as soon as you were born, your ageing began. You could say that it even began in your mother's womb. As you grew there, you became older than you were previously. Then birth occurred. If you hadn't, if you hadn't aged there, there would have been no birth. You would have just remained in the womb. Then as you grow bit by bit, from infant to child and so on, it's more ageing. So by the time you've reached this point, you can certainly say that you're old. You don't feel that you're old. You don't see it. But if you hadn't aged, you wouldn't be at this stage of your life now. It's better to think that you are old already, and then you'll feel the importance of having real Dhamma practice in your life. Then eventually, nobility and virtue will, will result. You should begin with, with virtuous ways right from today, when you're relatively young. Later on, you'll certainly have well-being. Creating good karma in the present, there is no miserable result later on. That's a good principle to follow. Actions that bring distress later on are those you can avoid. Those are good things to give careful consideration to in your youth. But if you have the idea that you must deal with different pressing matters before you can practice Dharma, there will likely never come such a time. So this is an encouragement to cultivate a, a sense of urgency and uh, to, to seize the day, to carpe diem, as it's said in Latin, to, to take the opportunity while we, we have vitality and uh, a certain amount of, of uh, mobility and our faculties of hearing and seeing and smelling, tasting, touching and, and so forth uh, are still functioning pretty um, effectively. So, uh, take advantage of that. That uh, the the habit, the worldly thinking, is to be complacent and just to assume that we just sort of translate the same faculties that we have now with an older body and, and with less responsibilities around. But what he's pointing out is like it doesn't doesn't work that way. <laughs> and to take advantage of the vitality and capacity that we have while while we are young. So this. Um, uh, this quality of, uh, of uh, urgency is called sangvega, and uh, a sense of um, of the taking the opportunity of each that each day presents. Sometimes people uh, will think of this as well. I'm practicing patience. <laughs> I'm just uh, uh, I'm I'm being patient, and uh, I, I I don't want to be too urgent. That makes that brings up uh, agitation, and I need to calm down. I need to be still. So I'm, uh, I'm practicing patience. Uh, I don't need to be in a rush to practice. And I would say that's a, a wrong understanding of, uh, of patience or a, a, and a wrong understanding of the application of energy. And so that the, um, uh, as I would think I was saying in the morning reflection uh, today, uh, and, uh, and I frequently do, that uh, the application of energy and effort doesn't necessarily entail stressfulness. Um, so the sense of urgency doesn't mean kind of making yourself anxious or agitated or, or stressed. It's uh, it's an, it's an application of energy and, and focus, a cultivation of, of intention. But it's not um, say if that's applied skillfully, it's not increasing the quality of, of anxiety. Like oh, I'm going to die any moment. I better. Uh, I've got to work on my mind, otherwise uh, all terrible things will happen. If we're cultivating a sense of urgency combined with self-view, 
then it creates more anxiety and stress. But if uh, urgency, sangvega, is is developed with with wisdom, then there's no self view involved. It's a, uh, there's there's energy. There's a sense of of um, having that priority to to wake up, to practice, to let go of of attachments. But it's not accompanied by by um, you know, anxiety or stress or I think one of I think uh, Sister Vidura was talking about her friend that was was stressed by the idea of sotapanna. Oh, you know that uh, uh, I'll uh, uh, I have to wake up. I have to reach stream entry. Otherwise, uh, ter- you know, terrible things are, hap- are going to happen to me, and that then being a cause for for greater dukkha. So that sense of urgency is something that's taken as a sign of of um, spiritual maturity and something to be developed. You know? So it's, um, there's definitely a, um, uh, kind of a an energizing and a sense of of um, alertness uh, and um, a an intensity of, of focus is encouraged, but uh, that needs if that's balanced with wisdom, then that doesn't bring any kind of, of um, burden or anxiety with it. And uh, again, this uh, uh, in the reading yesterday, Lumpur was talking about um, creating good causes, uh, creating causes in the present. I think it's quite in, uh, impactful how he says, creating good karma in the present, there's no miserable result later on. So take, uh, making the effort to do that which is good, that which is wholesome, that which is beneficial, even if it's uh, hard work to do that, there's always going to be a pleasant and, and, uh, and uh, say uh, a brightening and liberating result. Uh, maybe not immediately, but the, the, you're planting those causes in the present that will ripen in the future in uh, in, in beneficial ways. And so uh, that taking the opportunity to create skillful causes in the present is a a large part of of um, the practice, and also then. Recognizing the, the unwholesome tendencies, the unwholesome you know, habits and inclinations, to recognize those and, and to to let go of those. It's also creating good karma in the present, and that um, uh, that is all going to be contributing to create a sense of clarity, composure, and uh, and focus as you know, as life goes by. Creating good karma in the present, there's no miserable result later on. That's a good principle to follow. Actions that bring distress later on are those that you can avoid. These are good things to give careful consideration to in your youth. But if you have the idea that you must deal with different pressing matters before you can practice dharma, there will likely never come such a time. So that's also the, the, in the Sigala Sutta, in the Diganika, the Long Discourses, which is the, the Buddha's advice to, um, a quite thorough advice to a layperson, Sigala. Um, he kind of characterizes uh, how the, the mind easily works. Oh, it's too hot to practice, or it's too cold to practice, or I'm too hungry to practice, or I'm too full to practice. And he kind of goes through this long list of reasons why you know, today is not the day. Too early, it's too late. <laughs> got too much to do. You know, or, or, I haven't got anything to do. I've got, I haven't got anything to do. I should take advantage of the, of the holiday. And so on and so forth is a sort of way of characterizing the, the foolishness of the mind. But um, yeah, if if we're always putting it off, uh, then yeah, the 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 work 
that's necessary to bring about the the qualities that support liberation are never never going to be developed and that liberation is not going to happen on its own another of the sort of the um, relevant teachings I think that is um, uh, say even if you are older and you are uh, uh, suffering from illnesses <laughs> see my block nose uh, and uh, you've got as uh, as Lumpur was saying when you when you get up and you groan when you sit down you groan and and uh, you're using a stick to walk around that um, even that doesn't have to be an obstacle obviously it's better to have done your homework beforehand um, uh, but the the, um, the the presence of old age and, and illness and decrepitude and such like doesn't have to be an obstacle uh, the the very first sutta in the uh, connected discourses about the, the five khandhas, uh, which is section 22, I think, in the Sangita Nikaya, is a, a dialogue between the Buddha and Nakula Pitta, who is one of his very dedicated disciples. This, this elderly couple, Nakula Pitta and Nakula Mata, they had a very close relationship with, uh, with the Buddha. They... Uh, According to the stories, they'd been his parents in 500 previous lifetimes, many, many lifetimes. And they lived at Sumsumaragira, the Basakala Grove. And anyway, Nikula Pitta comes to, uh, to the Buddha and says, What advice can you give me? I'm very old, and like 100 years old. My body is decrepit. I've got um, all sorts of aches and pains and ailments. Um, what kind of advice uh, can you give me at this stage of my life? And the Buddha puts it very succinctly he says better to be afflicted in body and not afflicted in mind than afflicted in mind and not afflicted in the body <coughs> very succinct and clear way of expressing it and that um, that uh, then leads on to him giving the repeating the whole of the Anathalakana Sutta about uh, uh, reflecting on impermanence unsatisfactoriness and not self with in relationship to the to the five khandhas, so that even if you have left it a bit late, <laughs> uh, then um, uh, you know the uh, it's still that uh, the case that we uh, we can work with the body and mind. And if the attitude is skillful, if the the the, the relationship uh, of the mind to the body, even if there are lots of illnesses or there's uh, uh, lots of aches and pains and, and disabilities in terms of the physical setup then that doesn't have to be an obstacle better to be afflicted in the body and not afflicted in the mind and afflicted in the mind and not in the body um, well, maybe one last thing to add in there in terms of a sutta reference that is useful to reflect upon because there's quite a lot of, um, of Buddhist teachings or, or sort of folk belief within the Buddhist world that what the mind is dwelling on at the very last moment, before uh, the, the moment of death, that defines where the mind will, will gravitate to, or the, the place of rebirth. And the, so in commentarial literature, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I think it also uh, makes a point of that. And so it seems like that was even a, a, a sort of common folk belief in the, in the Buddha's time as well. And it, there's this dialogue between his... Um, his relative Mahanama, uh, who was the um, the ruler of the Sakyans, 
and um, he asked he came to the Buddha one day and said you know I'm really worried because you know I'm the, the ruler of this uh, of this uh, the country the, of the Sakyans uh, and you know my head is filled with all these concerns about the the security of the country and, and the economy and and uh, how to uh, to look after the welfare of all the people and so uh, my head is filled with all these concerns and worries about uh, governance and, and uh, the, uh, the the responsibilities of running the country. So I'm really worried if I get if I fall off my horse or I get knocked down by a runaway elephant or you know a car runs into me in the street and I get and I and I and I'm injured. Um, my head's going to be filled with all this nonsense about running the country. And so you know, I, I'm really concerned. That's what's going to be on my mind when I pass away. And very significantly, the Buddha says, you know, do not be afraid, Mahanama, do not be afraid. Because for many, many years, you have had unshakable faith in the Triple Gem, in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Your virtue has been, has been unstained. And, uh, and so um, that will have its effect you, at, the, at the last moment. Don't, don't be afraid, you know, don't be concerned. And then he gives this image. And he says, if you, if you had a, a clay pot like an earthenware pot filled with ghee, like very, very fine oil. And then you immerse that earthenware pot into a, a bowl of water and you break the pot. Then the shards of clay, the earthenware pot, would, the, the broken pieces would fall to the bottom of the, of the bowl, but the oil would rise to the surface. Uh, he said, in exactly the same way, because you've, you've fortified your mind for, for so many years, uh, with uh, with faith and with virtue and with with wisdom, then when the body breaks up, you know, the the elements will uh, will will scatter. The earth, water, fire, and wind will separate. Uh, the 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 shards will sort of fall to the bottom of the pot uh, of the bowl, but the the mind will rise to distinction. That's the, the phrase he uses. That you're the because of the. What you've been doing for the last forty years is going to have its effect. That's not like going to be totally lost just because you're you're, you're worrying about the um, the economy as you fall off your horse and just before the the last breath comes. So I feel that that's also significant in terms of of um, the uh, these concerns about when you know when when to practice and <laughs> the, ver- the the value of practicing sort of in good time so that. If you have put in the time, and you have, say, um, um, planted good seeds, uh, and, and created skillful causes over the years, then then they won't be wasted. Then that they will have their their effect, and uh, they won't be kind of completely overridden just because of being in a car crash or falling off your horse or or whatever it might be, having an aneurysm and and uh, keeling over at the breakfast table. So, before I go on, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Anyone feel like it's too late already? (laughs) Okay, very good. In Buddhism... Our actions should be aimed at making body and speech pure first. This is spoken of as sila, or morality. That's a simple way to put it. If the body and speech are pure, then there will be calmness. 
and the mind will be firmly established. This is speaking in a simplified way. What is this calmness about? If you haven't stolen anything, you're free of worry. When the police come looking for a thief, you can relax, because you know it's not you that they're after. If your mind is in this condition, free of anxiety, then, when sense activity and thinking occur, you're able to know them clearly. Briefly, this is called the progression of morality, concentration and wisdom. Earlier, we learned that to practice samadhi, we need a teacher. I, uh, I'll relate the following from my own studies. You had to have a teacher. So here he's talking about his own um, say, uh, beginning of his life um, in Dharma practice. So he entered the monastery when he was nine years old uh, on his own initiative. Uh, he had a large number of brothers and sisters and was um, uh, one day uh, they, uh, according to one of his, his, his uh, siblings, uh, he was working on uh, on some task around the house and uh, this particular thing that he was working on um, with great intensity broke and he said, I've had enough, I'm going to the monastery at the age of nine <laughs> stopped off the young young uh, Cha uh, Chuang, uh, uh, Chuang Chol and went off to the monastery and I think the, 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 the way that his sister recounted it was that you know, they thought he was going to be back you know, for supper uh, but he wasn't. He stayed there as a dequat, as a kind of temple boy, for quite some time, and then became a novice uh, and stayed in the monastery uh, as a novice up until the age of, of sixteen. Then he left, went back to lay life for about three or four years, and then when he he he, he turned twenty, then he uh, re uh, reordained and became a bhikkhu, and then uh, still lived in the village monastery in Bangkok, the little monastery close to where the uh, the little village close to where the main monastery is, um, for about another six or seven years uh, as a bhikkhu. And so that uh, his experience during those years, from when he was a temple boy and a novice, and then as a young monk for the first six or seven years uh, as a bhikkhu, then it was very much limited to the um, life in the village monastery and what he learned from the, the, the local elders and, and Ajahn's there. So... Um, he didn't really have any kind of contact with any meditation teachers. It was unusual for, for, for anybody to be practicing meditation in those days. So uh, he then goes into talking about his own kind of uh, folk beliefs that he was uh, introduced to or that he picked up in those early years in, in the monastery before he had any really um, sort of knowledgeable guidance. Earlier, we learned that to practice samadhi, we need a teacher. I'll relate the following from my own studies. You had to have a teacher. So you brought incense, candles and flowers to the teacher. You began in recitation, making obeisance to him. Then you supplicated and prayed, May this take effect in me. May sila that is not pure become pure. May samadhi come to reside in my mind. Quote, unquote. We studied the text, and then we did the complete recitation of the factors of concentration, different types of joy and rapture and so on. We invited Samadhi to come, and then we sat. But I never saw it come. I just sat there and got worked up because nothing was happening. So I started to think, eh, this is not the way to do it. If you could just invite virtue and concentration and they would come, that would certainly be easy. 
but it seems it's up to us to invest some effort here to make it happen. This is how it started to look to me, so I discarded the way that I had learned. So this is quite significant. So this is what he'd inherited as a sort of uh, tradition. Okay, you um, as a monk, then you this is the way you should do it. You should pay respects to the teacher and then invite virtue and concentration and wisdom to come as if they were kind of um, sort of a, uh, you know, requesting a delivery from Amazon. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You're, uh, you sign up for it and then you should get the delivery and then repeating all the words in a proper way and going through the whole list. These are the, these are the jhana factors that I'm inviting into my life. And it's like, hang on a minute. Nothing's being delivered here. There's, there's nothing arriving. And so, um, rather like the Buddha, uh, when he was practicing asceticism, and uh, as it's recounted in, in the suttas, when the Buddha had been a, a very rigorous ascetic for six years and had you know, starved himself to the point where he was just fainting and keeling over and was really emaciated. And it occurred to him, well, this is all supposed to be bringing wisdom and uh, and spiritual qualities, but it's it's certainly painful. And they say that experiencing this pain is somehow virtuous or beneficial or liberating. But I'm not any more liberated than I was before I did this. This isn't really having any kind of good effect. I'm following the system. I'm kind of doing the things that are supposed to be done, but the the effects that are supposed to be ha- uh, coming from this. It, it's not happening. So that sense of that uh, individual wisdom, the wisdom of the, the jitta for rising up to say, hang on a minute, I'm being told this is liberation, or I'm being told this is, this is good and valuable, but it isn't, really. <laughs> and that, uh, so the young Ajahn Chah had uh, the same kind of um, insight that while I'm doing all these things that you're supposed to do, and this is the customary way of doing things, but this isn't really, isn't really having any kind of beneficial effect. And then, as it turned out, um, uh, after he'd been a monk for six or seven years, then when his father was dying and going through a, a wasting illness for quite some months, and when he passed away, then that was what really brought it home that uh, that he, uh, the young, the young bhikkhu, uh, the young Ajahn Chah, had no real mental resources. He couldn't control his mind. He was very upset and distressed. And, and he realized, I don't have a refuge. I, I'm, I'm just, this is, is, uh, this is overwhelming. I, you know, I'm supposed to be a monk. I'm supposed to have objectivity. And we, re- we, we repeat these words, you know, like rupang anichang, the body is impermanent. You know, rupang anatta, the body is not self. But I can't deal with these feelings of losing my father um, uh, with any kind of real clarity or objectivity. This is supposed to be wisdom that we're developing, but this is there isn't really much wisdom coming from this at all. So being uh, in uh, in is uh, faced by that kind of reality, then he left the village monastery and started to seek uh, uh, actual meditation teachers and to to uh, say find a way to really do something about his mind rather than just learning like like sort of reading the recipe books he said okay i need to actually get out and, and learn how to cook um, because you know just having the words and the customs um, you know that uh, i've inherited this is not 
This is not doing the job. Pause for another sneeze. So any questions, thoughts? Thank you. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? Don't be shy. These readings are few. It's not just for me to sit and kind of fill the air with noise. I'm thinking the PTK refuge in the Triple Gem, and we take this form as monks and monks, and we are all teacher. And with this tradition, this identification, I feel well, very easily we can get identified with it. Especially we follow this form, discipline, and uh, all these conformities to be taken refuge. So easy to identify with it, and in the meantime, when we get when we are identified with something greater than ourselves, we get certain kind of energy with it. Feel very good. I'm a nun. I'm here, and I'm practice for liberation. I take refuge in Buddha's teaching. Feel really very good about it, but I still feel like that such deep identification, deep identification, couldn't really give us liberation. You could tell us how to not identify. <laughs> well, this, this, <laughs> listen to these teachings and apply them. I mean, that was one of the most interesting and powerful things about being around Lumpur Cha was that he was very committed and dedicated to the monastic life and very much a sort of orthodox, sort of straight down the middle Theravada monk. But then he would frequently make these kind of comments like there are no monks here, there are no nuns here, there are no women, no men, that these are these are, are conventional forms. We we designate these um, you know uh, these these qualities into being with our attitudes. There isn't really anything there. So he would both be very faithfully and sincerely following the forms and using the forms, but at the same time um, Making it absolutely clear that these are just samuti sacha, these just conventional truths. So then you're keeping, if you use the teachings and you apply them, then you're keeping it in perspective. Like, yes, there there is a sense of value and uh, an energy that comes from being part of a group or having clear uh, set of priorities. You know, re- recollecting Buddha Dharma and Sangha, you know, the triple gem um, that that has a certain effect but then you've got the reminders to don't cling to those effects don't uh, don't identify or attach whereas when you don't have those reminders then it's much much easier to have all kinds of unconscious attachments and identifications and things that you know you can tell yourself you're not attached but you know actually you know you really are so it's always up to the individual to recognize those areas of attachment and identification and uh, some things are easier to to see uh, some areas of attachment are easier to see than others Um, but if we are if we're working skillfully and using the forms um, in in the most um, sort of beneficial and wise and wise way then the 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 robes the the conventions of Theravada Buddhism and, and so on and so forth 
they become a, a useful vehicle. And I would say that uh, Nonpossumeta does also uh, very strongly emphasize that over the years, and it's been a very, very helpful aspect of, of, um, of his teaching that uh, he's carried on that same kind of keeping it in perspective that um, you are using the convention but without an attachment to the convention. And the whole point of the convention is to you know, let, let the mind out of the cage, as it were. That's the, that's the point of it. That's what the key is, is for, is to, that the conventions we use are like the key, not to be hung up on the, on the, on the, 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 um, the wires of the cage and worship, but actually you put it in the lock, turn it, and use the key to, to open the door. So it's a challenge, because you know, we can get very identified with our, our roles, you know, I'm an Anagarikar, I want to be a Siladarar, I'm a, I'm, a, a, I'm a Samanera, I want to be a Bhikkhu, and then when I'm a Bhikkhu, then. When, I'm an Ajahn, when I have my own monastery, then. <laughs> we, uh, we can, you know, we can personalize and, uh, and buy into the value system or think it's uh, that having, you know, say, been a monk for 44 years, that's some, some kind of intrinsic value or having a title you know um it's of some intrinsic value but it's just it's all nonsense really it doesn't really mean anything you know ask ask this the uh the the you know the the, the blackbirds and the magpies you know how many how you know how senior is Ajahn Amaro uh, sister Vidura how you know what would, uh, what's it like now that she's a a, a, a sila Dharal when she used to be an Anagarika? The magpies have no opinion. It doesn't mean anything to them at all. The the badger's out in the field. What, what do you what, uh, what do you think about the new construction in Amarathi? More worms, more worms. <laughs> the whole the value system is something we add to it. If you remember that, then. You can use the conventions with skill. If you forget that and you think, though, that the, these buildings are really good, or that these the, the, this person really is senior to that person, has some kind of absolute value, then then we're holding the conventions in an unskillful, unhelpful way. That, uh, so that it's the, the mind that can recognize that you know the the. The conventions that we have, they are only, they can only be human agreements, that's what they are. There's, and that we give them value, but there's, apart from what our mind adds to it, there isn't really any, there's no intrinsic value there. You know, what's wholesome and unwholesome, you know, those certain actions and structures bring pleasant, beneficial, liberating results, certain actions and words and Attitudes bring painful and uncomfortable results. So, but even and again, as Lumpur Chow would often make, there there's no absolute uh, good or bad. You know that we we, uh, we we make those into absolutes. But certainly, if skill, if the what we call sila or morality is followed, then that brings a pleasant result. Your heart is free of remorse. When the police come around, you don't have to think, oh dear. You know, you're, you're at ease because you know that they're not looking for you. And so that's a natural result. But it's not saying that 
uh, has in- intrinsic and absolute value on its own, and so that it's that that use of wise reflection to explore the many and various areas of our life where we do think something has value our, our education or our, uh, our family name or our role in in society um, you know, that the uh, <clears throat> being being a nun rather than a lay person in the eyes of of say someone who's a a um, uh, a fundamentalist Christian think oh she's much she's much worse off than if she was a layperson if she's made this this stupid commitment to being a Buddhist nun oh dear she's really in trouble where if you, if you, it's a for in a Buddhist community oh it's someone worthy of reverence because they've made that commitment you know it's just well who's right the, the fundamentalist Christian or the other Buddhists it's, depends on where you, you look at it uh, from you know so that it's it's a challenge, and that and also one of the the key aspects of Lumpur Chah's teaching is that quality of wise reflection, or like just like he's demonstrating here when he was a, a young bhikkhu, saying, "Hey, this uh, um, this uh, this doesn't really work. Uh, this is not the way to do it. If you could just invite virtue and concentration, they would come. That would be easy, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and so that sense of of using your your ability to explore and to look okay what's the mind attached to or when something that you think is valuable gets criticized or <laughs> dismissed you go something and you go huh that's wrong you say, oh where's that coming from i i say that has value and that's good somebody else just was, spoke about it or, or acted in a way that was dismissive of that so Therefore, I call them bad or wrong. Look at that. So just to be able to catch those judgments and to to not just believe that this is good, that's bad, that's right, that's wrong, this is beautiful, this is ugly, and taking them at face value. The wise reflection is like, oh, look at that. I really I really liked that one, didn't I? Or that... Or that uh, or the... Um, uh, or something is 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 painful or, or, or obstructive. Oh, I didn't like that one, did I? And just to to notice those, the way that the mind ascribes value and meaning to things, and to to see, oh, that's something the mind is doing. That's the it's a doing, that that designating, giving value to things, and the the more that you, you learn to do that, then that life gets a lot more spacious. Okay, so to continue. In practice, some come to see easily, some with difficulty. But whatever the case, never mind. Difficult or easy, the Buddha said not to be heedless. Just that, don't be heedless. Why? Because life is not certain. Wherever we start to think that things are certain, uncertainty is lurking right there. Heedlessness is just holding things as certain. It's grasping at certainty where there is no certainty and looking for truth in things that are not true. Be careful. They're likely to bite you sometime in the future. So also that uh, difficult or easy, the um, 
some of you are probably familiar with, but the, in one of the many lists that the Buddha created, he talked about the different tones or modes of practice um, and how uh, insight or wisdom arises. So there's four four types in this particular collection. So it's um, uh, it, the um, uh, that arises uh, wisdom arises quickly, but is uh, uh, is uh, uh, is painful. Uh, the practice is painful with quick result, uh, is painful with slow result. Or pa- practice is um, uh, is um, is pleasant uh, with quick result or pleasant with slow result. So these four different modes. So that so if you're thinking, well, I've yeah, I've got the um, slow and painful. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I got the slow and painful one, but uh, oh, and uh, can I can I uh, go for the quick and easy instead? So, but these again depend on the the uh, the past co- the causes that have been created in the past uh, has a, a lot of effect on this. So that um, so painful practice with quick result, painful practice with slow result, um, pleasant uh, pleasant practice with quick result, pleasant practice with Slow result. Again, you can uh, they can take those as identities, <laughs> think that they are who and what you are, but they're just describing different character types and and how uh, the past causes and dispositions can have their different effects. So, uh, <clears throat> grasping at certainty where there is no certainty, looking for truth in things that are not true. Be careful. They're likely to bite you sometime in the future. So, in dealing with things, true or false, good or bad, pleasing or displeasing, never mind. It's important to train the mind to accord with the path, which means establishing right view. Please, don't be careless. Don't get carried away building anything up, making a big deal out of it, to the point that you get lost. If there's a disappointment and upset over things, know that there is unhappiness. But don't let the suffering exceed the truth of what it is. If you like things, don't get carried away. You can have the liking, but it shouldn't become excessive. In the local idiom we say, don't get drunk. When you meet unhappy situations, don't become drunk with unhappiness. When you experience happiness or pleasure, don't become drunk with that. We say, don't get drunk. But it just means not to let things go to excess. Have a sense of moderation. If things stay with us, that's okay. If things leave us, that's okay. But if we're intoxicated with things, we suffer when we lose them, if they're pleasant. Or if unpleasant phenomena stay and won't leave, we suffer too. If we grasp them firmly, we exceed the truth of them and lose the path. This is not Dharma, and we're not practitioners of Dharma. This excess leads us to stray from the path. So a very common expression of Lumpur Chars was uh, in Thai, and forgive my poor Thai pronunciation, is Kenan. It's just that. It's only this. Kenan. Um, when you get a big success and people praise you and say, oh, it's fantastic, it's wonderful, so this is 
so impressive. It's just that. Came up. It's just people being impressed with something you've done. You're not dismissing it. You you can feel a sense of oh, I'm I'm I'm, I'm glad that people are pleased with with what I did. But it's just that. It's just that feeling of, of pleasure. Or when you you do something badly and people criticize, oh, did you really mean to do that? <laughs> and it's it's a painful feeling. Oh, this is what it feels like to be criticized or to have um, done something that just didn't work or it was a, a, uh, um, it's a big failure. Then, okay, it's just that. <laughs> don't, don't make anything more of it. Uh, the, uh, the mind is always prone to adding on extras and calling things a, a great disaster or something that's, that's uh, terrible or awful or something that's you know, wonderful and great. We, we inflate uh, happiness and unhappiness. Um, the mind adds on its own sort of story or, and, and its decorations. But um, that, that simple phrase, it's just that, Kenan, it's, it's only this. There, there's nothing more to it than this. That's a very simple way to reflect. But if we apply that, it makes a huge difference. <laughs> uh, I think all of us in, in various ways, shapes and forms, you know, we, we've had those kind of experiences where we've, we've been praised for something, we've done something, and people say, oh, this is so wonderful, this is so marvellous. And... Yeah, there's a there's a sweet feeling. There's a a, a little glow in the heart. Um, it's not trying to pretend that there isn't that glow, but it, can we just leave it alone? Can we just let it be that? Or when we we do things that are, are really a a, um, a mistake, or, or you, you know you got completely the wrong end of the stick, um, then uh, then to just say, okay, well that didn't work. I'm saying this and also being reminded of, of early days in in uh, Thailand. So, um, in my my very early time as an, as an Anagarika, I had I had no background in monastery life and um, no no uh, appreciation of the value system of um, the what was in what was called the sugar kuti. Uh, I was the uh, there was only a, a couple of of Anagarikas there at Wat Pananisha in the in my early days, so we took it in turns to make things, and um, and I didn't realize that cocoa was an extremely valuable commodity, not cash value, but monastic emotion value. <laughs> it was very rare, very special, um, and uh, and also I didn't appreciate how the local people um, didn't. Uh, didn't relate to Western uh, Western food in, in very in the same way that Westerners would do. So uh, I, I had this this idea. We had some cocoa, and then I was uh, I was in the kitchen uh, you know, every so often because I was an anagarika. That was okay. And I, I took this. The, uh, I didn't even I didn't realize that the water pots were just for boiling water, and they weren't for cooking other things in. So I took this water pot, and I and I was thought the idea I'll make chocolate rice pudding. And so I used this large amount of cocoa. I didn't know how to cook sticky rice either, which is the local kind of rice. So I had this idea: wouldn't it be nice to have some chocolate? I'm not looking for chocolate rice pudding. This is just a completely random you know, memory. Um, 
but I had that, and I, this was 45 years ago, so you know, I had that idea. Oh, well, wouldn't it be nice? You've got chocolate, you've got rice, there's all the sugar, I'll make chocolate rice pudding for everyone. That would be, uh, that would be a treat. And so, uh, I, uh, so I used up all this extremely valuable cocoa, which was for evening time cocoa, which shouldn't be wasted to be uh, used at the meal time. I didn't have any kind of concept of, of its, its value in the mindset of the Venables. And so I, um, I used up a large amount of chocolate uh, cocoa powder making this rice, rice pudding um, and then cooked it up in a, in, a water, in a water boiling vessel, which was the wrong thing to cook it in. And um, so I thought it, worked, it came out pretty good. And I thought, well, this, this is, uh, people will be really pleased with this. But um, I also didn't realize that, that um, for mo- most of the other Westerners, that was not something particularly exciting or interesting. So uh, when, it was, when it was passed out, people took a, took a bit of it. But there was a large amount of it was left for the villagers. And so I was also there at the end of the line thinking, oh, well, OK, there's still there's a lot left for the villagers. And then found that the, when I got back to the kitchen later on, the villagers had tipped the whole lot out, and the and the, uh, the local dogs were having a good time, <laughs> feasting on this uh, this chocolate rice pudding. So um, I died a few deaths over that. But, oh, this, they they don't know my rice pudding, and that uh, how could this be? And and then the monks were kind of scowling at me. How could you even think of using up all that chocolate for this uh, for this food? And. Uh, so I'm sure some of you are thinking, what's the big deal, whether it was, whether you use it in the morning or the evening? But take it from me, it was a big deal, capital B, capital D. That uh, it was a, there was a, a very limited range of things that were allowable in the in the afternoon and the evening, and uh, chocolate was uh, <coughs> something that had a had a um, mate was major currency, and so to to use it in the morning was totally. Foolish and uh, and uh, uh, something to be scowled at. So, so uh, that um, uh, just to be able to look at that and go, okay, <laughs> that didn't work, and then leave it alone. That's the kind of, of challenge that uh, that we face with all you know the many and various things that happen in our lives that are, are painful or, or are pleasant to get. Uh, to get praised or to be um, something to be very successful, to to not get drunk on that, I think that's the, probably a, the best description is is the encouragement not not to get drunk but to just let things be as they are. You're not pretending that those feelings of sweetness or bitterness are, are not there, but just uh, okay, that's it. It's kind of, it's only that. This straying is wrong view which is the cause of suffering. The explanations of our practice are aimed at knowing cessation of suffering. Practicing according to that understanding is simply practicing to realize the cessation of suffering. If we have this kind of view, we know suffering suffering and how it arises. We know its cessation and the way to practice to bring about its cessation. This is what is called knowledge in Buddhism doesn't refer to anything else. If we don't understand suffering, we're going to get involved in suffering without any moderation. If we like something, we're not likely to establish any limits. There'll be no reflection 
on whether or not it's really beneficial, and we won't heed anyone's counsel. No one will be able to stop us. Someone may, may be gorging himself on his favourite delicacies, and no matter what you tell him, he has no desire to control himself. No problem, I assure you. To him, it's all good, simply because he likes it. He doesn't think about it later in the day when he'll feel sick and bloated. When it's too late, he's taken by surprise and gets upset. So knowledge in Buddhism is not having a lot of facts about things, having kind of encyclopedic range of information, but knowledge is seeing th- uh, life in the framework of, of suffering and the ending of suffering, Four Noble Truths. So the Buddha wanted us to know this this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the ending of suffering. And this is the path to the ending of suffering. All practice can be summarized into these factors. This is all there is. To put the Dharma into concise, succinct terms, there is suffering born and suffering passing away. Outside of this, there's nothing else. Suffering arises, suffering passes away. Also, that um, might seem a little bit, <laughs> a bit too spare for most people, but uh, but uh, I think again it's a helpful reflection. Outside of this, there is nothing else. Suffering arises, suffering passes away. And uh, there's also in a number of places in the suttas, particularly in the uh, a dialogue between the Buddha and Mahakachana, in, um, in the um, connected discourses on causation where um, the, the Buddha is dis- uh, describing that, uh, that insight into, into um, the nature of experience, he says there is no doubt what one goes beyond doubt, that what arises is only dukkha arising, and what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. Full stop. So again, that's a bit of a blunt or kind of stark statement, but... Um, yeah, to, to sort of boil every, the whole wealth of our human experience and uh, uh, our own personality, our memories, our ideas, our feelings, our emotions and, uh, and the, the whole sensory world to sort of boil it all down to there's, there's nothing else suffering arising, suffering passing away it can seem a little bit, <laughs> a little bit too, um, too concentrated or too densely packed but it, I feel it's also a helpful lens to look at the whole range of things that, that we experience. Uh, there's Outside of this, there's nothing else. Suffering arises, suffering passes away. So any thoughts, reflections, questions? Yes. Earlier on, Those sort of men and women, monks and nuns, and um, the difference between ultimate reality and conventional reality. Now, I, I kind of get that that uh, let's say sort of the human convention that we call ourselves humans and we call let's say a hen a hen. Then there's another kind of reality where, however much I identify as a hen, I, I can't lay an egg. So how does that? Because that's not really ultimate reality either. Mm-hmm. But it kind of feels like there are sort of different layers 
convention and everything. But there's, there's a pure sort of human kind of labelling agreements, you know, of social constructs. But then there's also kind of something other than that. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, the the um, um, the the forms of the material world and the mental world, they function according to laws of nature. So water boils at a hundred degrees centigrade at sea level. That uh, ice forms at zero degrees centigrade, um, and so those. Those are the functions of the uh, of the material world, and then also in terms of the mental world. Your memory works in a certain way, imagination works in a certain way. Um, so those those patterns uh, of the uh, what they call the niyama, those laws, function um, they, so that the 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 factors of nature are interrelated and and. Um, work in, in certain ways and so that that's part of that's what in a sense defines the field of experience how language works how thought works how gravity works and how the transmission of sound works and so on those those are all part of the experiential field um, but you can say that there um, Ultimately, there there isn't really any sound, or there isn't you know water is just a, a way of describing a particular set of experiences. But those experiences function according to those laws that on this planet, <laughs> yeah, H two O boils at hundred degrees at, at sea level, and, and so on and so forth. So those uh, those niyamas, those laws of nature, physics and chemistry, biology, psychology. Um, they they pertain so that defines how the, the the patterns of nature form and take shape. So it's not completely random or, 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 or like you say you can't just flap your wings and fly. Um, there are um, the you know the psychic powers that some some beings have, uh, where there's such a level of attunement to that fundamental reality of Dhamma and. Um, or such a degree of concentration where some of those laws can be uh, negotiated with. <laughs> People can fly through the air, or or uh, or um, you can, um, you know, like uh, carry out various sort of psychic, psychically um, uh, affected actions. But still, you know, it's uh, they. I would still say that the, even when the application of psychic power, there's there's limitations or there's there's forms where there's that things work in. Like when the Buddha was asked, uh, "Are you omniscient? You know, do you know all things at all times?" The Buddha said, "No. You know, there's no one that can can claim that. But if I want to put my mind onto something, I can know it. But I don't know all things at all times. You know, if I." I can, but I, the mind has to be directed. That's why sometimes in the suttas and the Vinaya, the Buddha will, will ask a question: "Well, what happened here?" You know, he hasn't put his mind onto to the situation, and, and uh, oh, things have occurred out of the range of his knowledge because he wasn't paying attention to it. You know, so that um, there are there are limits even with the, the presence of psychic power, things like that. So that, uh, that that's how I understand that it, it works. That's 
Would be your question? Yeah, I think so. It's just um, it's just that difference between um, say labelling, labelling and agreement, you know, human agreements, and there's something seemingly something underlying you know, underlying that which you know you can't just um, identify as a particular thing and be that thing. Yeah, it's, uh, I would say that that you you can't you can't uh, in a way you can't talk about what's actually here we say book as a way of talking about this set of perceptions and and things but what this actually is well, outside of a, the human way of perceiving and, and labeling you can't i mean there's a whole uh, whole schools of philosophy around uh, you know the idea of a thing in itself ding an sich in uh, in Immanuel Kant, I think, his philosophy, the thing in itself, it's it depends upon the human uh, agency of, of experiencing from its own side. What is it? <laughs> so you, you, um, that you can't, you can only meaningfully talk about the world that you that you experience. But there are those those laws that that, that nature nature functions. In, in accordance with that um, makes the uh, uh, the field of experience as it is for us in terms of the human body, language, uh, communication, relationships, um, le- le- dealing with uh, weather and, uh, and looking after the body with you know, food and shelter and so on and so forth. Those things pertain. Uh, and then the, the part of the, the spiritual practice and I think what the forest tradition uh, is very very skillful with is how it says yeah you you can't if you try to ignore those basic laws and uh, and, and, and uh, pretend they're not there or to say, or just say oh this is just convention it's like no there's a hole in your roof <laughs> you're 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 you're, you're uh, sort of assuming you're being unattached to the fact there's a hole in your roof or that everything in your kuti is getting ruined and so this What's what is currently your kuti is going to be useless for anybody else who comes after you because the whole thing is getting rotten and falling apart. So let's repair that roof. So that there's a, a practicality in working with those uh, the way that the the laws of nature function, but again recognizing that that um, this is not something to be attached to or identified with. This is just the, what forms the, the fabric of this particular. Realm. Very quick follow-up question. Um, would it be a reading time? I uh, know there's a dhamma talk. So, the uh, when there's a dhamma talk in the evening, then uh, on the one pra, then there's no reading, and then the day after, one pra, then it's an open schedule, and so I get together with the Alagaritas, Alagaritas, and novice. Uh, and then there, there are readings on those days. And Saturday afternoon there is a workshop? Saturday afternoon there is a workshop and that should be in here. I'm not sure who's leading it, one of the, one of the lay people. But let's leave it there for this evening. <laughs>